Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Christian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Justin McGeary, one of the hosts of this channel. Today we'll be talking about the book, The Need for Creeds Today, Confessional Faith in a Faithless Age. Uh, The book, The Need for Creeds, in five succinct chapters, covers biblical arguments for confessions. It examines Reformed confessions, particularly in the early modern period uh, when there was a a lot of confession writing happening between 1500 and 1700. And then uh, it examines causes for decline uh, in confessions and interest in confessions, and then concludes with um, the benefits of confessions and the role that they can play in Christian piety. Uh, It examines biblical, theological, and historical arguments um, all related to the confessions with an eye to um, the role they might also play in uh, Christian churches, both historically and today. With me to discuss the need for creeds today is John Fesco, the book's author. John, welcome to the show. Uh, Thanks for having me, Justin. It's great to be with you. Yeah, it was a great uh, read. And I wonder, before we get into talking about the book, maybe you could just say a little bit about yourself. We've had you on the show before, but you could reintroduce yourself. No worries. Uh, I am the Harriet Barber Professor of Systematic and Historical Theology at Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. And I've been here for about uh, three and a half years, but I've also been in full-time ministry for about 25 years. And I was a pastor for a little bit over 10 years, and I've been a uh, full-time professor of theology uh, for about the last 15 years. And so uh, my wife and I and my kids, uh, we all live in the greater Jackson area. And uh, so, uh, you know, I've been, uh, I love teaching theology. It's a lot of fun. And uh, it's always fun as well to uh, to, to write books uh, the way that I do, just because I feel like it's an education each time uh, for me. So I hope that whatever books I write are uh, useful and beneficial and educational for people uh, that read them. But uh, I'm not just uh, about books. I also have other hobbies and such. And uh, I was, um, I love doing carpentry. It's like um, Mm. I was telling students before I got into carpentry because I needed bookshelves. (laughs) Uh, So I have lots of books. So I guess I I figured, well, I need some place to put them. So, uh, so that's kind of one of the, you know, things that I do if I'm not necessarily reading, writing or studying or teaching or spending time with my family is I'll I'll try to build things. Okay. Uh, Only bookshelves? Uh, well, other things I've built, uh, a kitchen table, Oh wow! uh, a side hutch for my wife, um, and, uh, a chair, uh, that used to be in my office, but now it's in our bedroom. Uh So I've built a number of things over the years. Uh, so uh, a big mirror that my wife wanted, uh, wanted. So it was more just the frame, not the glass part. But uh, uh-huh. yeah, so I built a, a number of things over the years. Well, that's, Im- that's impressive. Uh, I wonder if you could, to kick us off in talking about your book, just how did you come to write uh, on the need for creeds? Well, studying uh, confessions and creeds has been something that I've done for a while in my teaching, because as a Presbyterian minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, I not only only subscribe to the Westminster Standards, the doctrinal standards of the Presbyterian Church uh, and many historic Presbyterian churches, but I also teach them, so I'm always seeking to study them. Uh, And uh, I was asked a couple of years ago if I would be willing to give uh, a number of lectures on 
the importance of creeds uh, and confessions. And so they asked me to do a series of lectures. First of all, what was the biblical basis of creeds? Secondly, uh, what are the benefits of creeds? And then thirdly, what are the, um, uh, you know, what are the criticisms that people typically uh, bring uh, against uh, creeds and confessions? And that's so that kind of set the basic framework for what I was working with. And then I mm-hmm. added some extra material to the book from other research. Uh, and that, in, in a sense, is the uh, is the genesis uh, of uh, of this little book. Great. Yeah. Um, one of the things, actually, when you kick off with your introduction, you actually start by talking about uh, not a Presbyterian, or, but Ralph Waldo Emerson. Why did you Why did you start with Ralph Waldo Emerson? <laughs> yeah, you know, again, one of the things that we often have to do is we have to ask ourselves, um, you know, why do we think the way that we think? And I think a lot of people don't give a whole lot of thought to that. And so somebody like Ralph Waldo Emerson, who's a 19th century writer and, and, and poet and, uh, you know, and, you know, you could even say something of a philosopher if you use a slightly broader definition mm-hmm. of the term, is that uh, he's perhaps one of the people that uh, talks about a movement known as transcendentalism. And it's the, uh, you know, one of the uh, features of this is that we, in a sense, kind of carve out our own existence in this world and we don't need uh, to look to the past. You know, one of the things he says is, why can't we uh, enjoy an original relationship to the world rather than looking through the eyes of tradition uh, why can't we have our own new thoughts? You know, why do we have to, re, you know, look and build upon the tombs of our fathers? Why can't we cut our own path? And there's a sense in which we can say that Emerson was but one figure of a larger movement of individualism that is formed, especially here uh, in the United States and in the West, uh, that has historically created a relatively inhospitable uh, context uh, for confessionalism. In other words, why do we need tradition when I can make my own religion? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so then uh, you go on to lay out uh, the overview of your argument and the rest of the introduction. Um, And maybe the first part of your argument is that um, confessions are actually something that you find uh, as uh, supported uh, by scripture. Um, So maybe could you highlight a few of the kind of passages and where you see that as uh, see creeds as kind of a biblical uh, imperative? Yeah, I think one of the the chief places, and there's some others that I talk about, but we could say, let's say two of the chief places that I look at. The first is, um, you know, we could say is Israel's first creed, which is otherwise known as the Shema. And the Shema, um, S-H-E-M-A, is is the Hebrew word for hear. And that's the first word of Deuteronomy 6-4, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall worship. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And so, what um, what they say, what what the Shema f- it constitutes is Israel's first creed, and that God says here is a succinct doctrinal statement that you need to hold dear to your heart, and it's not just something that you profess with your mouth. 
and just repeat the words, but rather it's ultimately supposed to sink down into your heart. And it's the doctrinal claim that God is the only one we are supposed to worship, the only one we are supposed to love, and the only one that we are to serve with our whole being, and we cannot serve any other God. But at the same time, this short but potent um, doctrinal creed, and a creed we can say is a doctrinal formula to which people must subscribe, uh, we can define a confession as a more extensive set of creedal statements um, mm-hmm. that is, you know, more detailed. Uh, but this 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 little creed in, in in terms of what God calls us to believe, it's not only supposed to be a statement of doctrinal orthodoxy. So in other words, here's a doctrine that we are to affirm, but it's ultimately also supposed to uh, bear the fruit of holiness in our life in terms of you know, it's if you know God is telling us in this creedal statement that we're to love Him, so we it's we can't just say that belief in God is supposed to be a dry set of you know dusty propositions, but that ultimately it's supposed to sink down into our hearts and flow out of our lives, not only in a love for God, but as well we would say in a in a love for neighbor, and so that's just you know one of the statements that we see there in Scripture that we can say is creedal in nature, but. More to the point of uh, human-made creeds, we find Paul in the pastoral epistles talking about what some translations render it as his trustworthy sayings. Hmm. And what a trustworthy saying is, and and you know, I would ask the listener to follow this line of of, of uh, you know uh, reasoning carefully, is that they are extra biblical statements in other words statements that originate outside of the scriptures that are are concise summarizations of biblical teaching and so what this means is that um, these are statements that originate outside of the bible but that they faithfully uh, reproduce and they faithfully echo biblical teaching because in all of these trustworthy sayings they're not quotations from anywhere in the Bible. So it's not that Paul is drawing upon an Old Testament text or perhaps some of the explicit statements of Jesus, but rather these are sayings that the church have come up with that have accurately summarized the um, the teaching of Scripture. And their degree of accuracy is such that Paul saw their fidelity to the teaching of Scripture so much so that he included them in his divinely inspired epistles. Mm -hmm. Uh, So in other words, it says that it is possible for fallen but redeemed people uh, to summarize faithfully in their own words the teaching of Scripture. And so this is where we see, um, uh, you know, creedal formulas that come from outside the Scripture getting, you know, blessed or baptized, if you will, by their inclusion in the inerrant and infallible and inspired scriptures. And what this says is that, you know, just as we are not forbidden from praying in our own words, so long as we do so faithfully adhering to the teaching of scripture, and just as we are not restricted to reading the scriptures in worship, but that preachers, so long as they are faithful to the teaching of Scripture, can use their own words 
And likewise, just as we sing songs in worship uh, that are faithful to the teaching of Scripture, but we can use our own words, so too we can create uh, creedal and doctrinal confessions of faith that summarize in our own words uh, the teaching of Scripture. And I, I think what all of this ends up becoming is is that what you see not only in Paul's trustworthy sayings, but also in the Shema and in other places, is that it is a divinely uh, commanded traditio. And I use the Latin word there. It's where we get the word tradition. Traditio literally means a handing down. And so in this case, in, in ancient Israel, you know, they were supposed to hand down faithfully the teaching of God's word, as well as faithful explanations of it. And so that's what we do when we write confessions of faith, uh, or when we profess confessions of faith, is that one generation is saying to the next, this is a faithful summary of the word of God, therefore you too need to profess it. Uh, and so that's some of the biblical basis and some of the arguments that I bring forward in the book for the biblical basis for creeds and confessions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very helpful summary. Um, yeah, that's very helpful. So then what you do is you jump into the actual uh, more of the uh, within the church history, um, actual time periods of confession writing, particularly the time of 1500 to 1700 when there's a lot of reformed confessions being written and one of the things that you address kind of right off the bat is that there's a misconception about sort of some of the earlier confessions versus some of the later confessions particularly those related to the early and high uh, reformed orthodoxy could you at least uh or um could you just tell us a little bit about how people sometimes contrast the two uh the differing eras and uh why uh, you think that maybe that is a misconception, not an accurate uh, understanding? I think on the one hand, an initial reaction to, say, comparing early Reformed confessions with post-Reformation confessions, or even uh, second-generation Reformed confessions, such as the Belgic Confession, which was written in 1561, we might think, oh my goodness, look at how extensive these documents are in comparison to these much simpler documents of the Reformation era or the early Reformation. Can't we just go back to these simpler documents? Mm -hmm. Because these, these things are too weighty, they're too detailed, uh, they're too burdensome. Uh, you know, they just only breed conflict. And, uh, you know, we, we want to go back to a simpler time. And so on the one hand, I can say, I say, okay, I understand that immediate reaction. But if we look at the details more closely, we can see that there's a good reason as to why the post-Reformation and the later Reformation confessions of faith are more detailed. And I'll, I'll walk through this, you know, hopefully very smartly here, very quickly, is that first of all, the, the first generation confessions were typically written by small groups of people. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Melanchthon alone largely writes the Augsburg Confession. Um, a small group of pastors writes the Tetrapolitan Confession. Zwingli alone 
uh, writes his own personal confession of faith. Calvin alone, for the most part, writes the Geneva Catechism of 1542. Uh, whereas by contrast, the Westminster Confession of Faith was written by over 100 people. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is a virtue. It's it's a good thing because rather than getting the 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 you know the doctrinal explanation of one, two, or a very very small group of people, like the Scots Confession, which was literally written by six ministers named John, um, but uh, it's not just these small group of people, but it is a large group of people, which means that this document, the Westminster Standards, for example are going to have room for what we can call as a diversified orthodoxy. In other words, they're not written so uh, tightly that you can't have multiple opinions on different subjects so that it allows for some doctrinal elbow room that earlier documents might not allow. So it's actually a good thing that it's written by a lot of participants rather than just a few. Secondly, is that it's just natural that these documents would grow because as doctrinal formulations became more precise, more careful, or in some cases sharper because of false teaching, uh, which then necessitated greater detail, uh, then you need more and longer explanations as to why you know the doctrine needs to be stated the way that it is. So that there were all sorts of uh, debates and disagreements and even heretical teaching that the reformers said, okay, we have to be more specific here, such as you don't find lists of books of the Bible in confessions until latter reformed confessions, latter reformation era confessions, because they were responding to the Council of Trent's inclusion of lists of books of the Bible. So, oh, they saw the need. We have to expand ours to say, Mm -hmm. no, we exclude the Apocrypha. So the growth of these documents is in a sense, just the natural outworking of debating doctrine with, you know, different groups such as Roman Catholics or Anabaptists or whatever. And so in that sense, I think it's beneficial and useful. And then thirdly, very quickly, I'll try to say this, is that, you know, if the reformers are committed to the chief authority of Scripture, sola scriptura, that Scripture alone is our chief authority in doctrine and life, and later generations discover, hey, we need to improve our confessional, um, you know, uh, our confessional understanding of a doctrine, then they would be unfaithful to Scripture if they didn't expand upon the doctrine as they understood it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, they would be actually unfaithful to Scripture if they failed accurately to reflect what the Scriptures are teaching. And so that's another reason as to why these uh, these documents are larger. So at the end of the day, I think that it's a welcome thing that these documents are larger, and I think it's unfair uh, to hold them to uh, these kind of artificial, perhaps self-imposed standards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, that's very interesting. And one of the other uh, misconceptions, if you could speak to briefly, is that often the uh, the term gets thrown around that the later ones are scholastic versus the early ones are not, are not that. They're more um, maybe alive. Uh, I'm not sure what the exact 
term would, would be, but uh, could you s- just speak a little bit to the nature of how scholasticism did or did not influence uh, some of the later confessions? Yeah, let me give you a quick 20th century history lesson on the assessment of scholasticism. Scholastics used Aristotle. Aristotle is a pagan, therefore scholasticism is bad. That's 200 years of history (laughs) in in, in two quick sentences there, or three quick sentences. And uh, what, what more responsible history has said is, no, scholasticism is just simply a method of doing theology that is very precise, that was conducted in medieval universities and theological institutions, sometimes monasteries. And it's very precise in its nature. It just says, okay, let's ask a question. Here are several objections. And now here's the theologian's opinion. And here are the authorities. Here's scripture. Here's other church authorities. Just a very kind of methodical way of doing doctrine. Mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, historians say, oh, the Westminster Confession of Faith is too scholastic. And I want to say, no, it is not at all scholastic. It's not written in a scholastic mode. It was written specifically for the church. And in fact, the Westminster divines were very deliberate about this, saying we don't want it to be scholastic in nature. We want it for the church, not for the academy. Mm -hmm. That being said, I think what critics are trying to say is, is that it doesn't give enough elbow room for different opinions. And I say it does in many places but it doesn't in some places. In other words, sometimes the confession draws lines and Mm -hmm. it says you cannot cross this line. Look at all of the the qualifications in chapter 11, for example, in the Westminster Confession of Faith on what it says justification is and justification is not. By contrast, sometimes it draws circles, which it says within this circle, there are a number of views that are acceptable. Mm -hmm. So for example, it doesn't commit uh, an adherent to the confession to say uh, in the pre-fall world, God's grace was needed. It just says nothing about it. It just simply qualifies it and says that God voluntarily condescended, which could house a number of different views. Mm -hmm. Or for example, the Westminster divines were uh, debated the nature of Adam's reward. Was it eternal life or was it li- extended life in the garden, temporal life? They couldn't agree. And so what do they say? That Adam's reward was life. Mm. That is a circle rather than a line. And it says there are several opinions on this matter, so let's not define it. So that's why I say that I think when the critics come, it's I suspect they don't get enough elbow room on issues that shouldn't have elbow room, Mm -hmm. you know, like they want, you know, for example, Arminian views on the doctrine of election included, uh, or perhaps antinomian views on the law of God included, uh, or perhaps legalistic views included. And the confession in certain places just doesn't simply allow for that. So they throw the insult of scholasticism in the efforts to decry the confession rather than to be more cautious to say, no, it's not scholastic in nature. It's just carefully defined so that false views cannot be uh, brought into the church. Yeah, thank you. That's helpful. In the third chapter, which actually is the longest chapter, is actually, interestingly enough, not on uh, 
the confessions, but actually on causes for deconfessionalization. Um, I wonder if you could, um, yeah, lay out what you what you see is. I mean, so it's a, it's also a historical uh, chapter, and so you kind of slowly show how essentially starting in the early 1700s uh, and maybe even prior up through probably about the 19th century, how the confessions became less and less significant um, in the theological um, world, I guess, uh, generally speaking. Yeah, you know, I think one, if you, you know, the common understanding is, is the reason why the large portion of the church and or confessions fell into disuse is we want to point the finger at the outside world and say, well, it's the influence of enlightenment rationalism, uh, you know, or uh, it's the influence of of individualism, say, going back to, uh, you know, Ralph Waldo Emerson and the like. And I want to say, okay, that's that's true. Uh, it's certainly due in part to those types of, uh, you know, philosophical and historical and cultural developments in the broader world. But I would I say that this is really only one half of the picture. The mm-hmm. other half of the picture I try to say is, is that it's due in part to the church's own failures. And uh, in that regard, for example, I, you know, note that the uh, the Thirty Years' War, which was fought from 1618 to 1648 in Europe, uh, was the uh, most destructive war in all of world history up until the 20th century in World War I. Mm-hmm. Eight, eight million people died in the Thirty Years' War, and this was fought on confessional lines, Roman Catholic against Protestant, uh, and atrocities and barbarities were committed on both sides. Uh, when you, you know, wipe out um, a third of the population of Germany and over half of German villages, for example, all in the name of a confession of faith, uh, that's a problem, to mm-hmm. say the least, that's to put it mildly. And you had philosophers such as John Locke, for example, or Thomas Hobbes looking out upon this bloody history and saying, hey, this is wrong. And not only that, but it was ex- exacerbated by the fact that the English Civil War, which had a quarter of a million casualties, was fought uh, along confessional lines. And as Hobbes notes in his Leviathan, he says, when you're talking about royalist versus parliamentarian, they don't disagree on the Trinity, the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of salvation, on prayer, on any significant doctrinal issue. Rather, they disagree on church government and they fight this, a, a, a war over this essentially, with 250,000 people dead. Uh, there's a sense in which when John Locke writes his letter on religious toleration, that it's an effort to try to torpedo confessions of faith because he sees this as a cause of the conflict. Hmm. And there's a sense in which it's a contributing factor. But I would say that it's not the use of confessions that was problematic, but rather the abuse of confessions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to I borrow this quote from Carl Truman, you know, and I kind of modify it for my own uh, purposes, but I would say that confessions don't kill people, people kill people. 
borrowing that from the NRA. You know, guns don't kill people. People kill people. You know, so in other words, it's the abuse of the confession of faith that creates the problem. But at the same time, I want to note this to say, hey, let's make sure that this doesn't happen again, Mm -hmm. that in the name of our confessions, that we do ungodly things, that we do sinful things. And Mm -hmm. um, in addition to this, uh, one other thing I would note is that Christians, even in their efforts to try to promote um, the, you know, Christianity at times uh, promoted things like mysticism that were, um, contrary to the very confessions of faith that they were teaching. So uh, I want to say that the the causes of deconfessionalization lie both within and without the church. And that's what I try to point out in this chapter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, you, there's a, a number of things that you point to, uh, including, you know, enlightenment notions of reason, uh, even biblical theology, um, the rise of certain conceptions of science and the German University. Um, so yeah, there's a, a number of things that you, I, I think, uh, helpfully explore there. Um, and uh, I, I think it, it was interesting and provocative as well, the fact that you start off by saying, uh, yeah, it's not outside of the church, but even uh, within the church, uh, that these things happen. Now, um, when you come to chapter four, you want to talk about sort of the benefits, you know, after sharing a few of the maybe downsides of the way they've been used, some of the benefits of uh, confessions. And I think you you start off by noting the distinguishing uh, between orthodoxy and heterodoxy. And I think that that's generally kind of something a lot of people can probably intuit. But you and you mentioned this earlier, you talk about creating a diversified orthodoxy. Um, I wonder if you could just speak to that a little bit again, because I think that that's maybe not something that most folks think about when they think of uh, a confession or a creed. Yeah, I do think that a lot of people these days, perhaps it's because of the individualistic age with w- in which we live, they see creeds and confessions as being confining, kind of like a doctrinal straitjacket. Yeah, you know. But but like I said before, I said that in this in one sense, yes. They're trying to confine us on very important issues like, can we deny the deity of Christ? And of course, the answer is no. Can we deny the doctrine of the Trinity? No. Can we deny the doctrine of creation out of nothing? No. You know, there's some things that in a sense are kind of non-negotiables. But on the other hand, the confession does, I think, have a lot of open fields, if you will, uh, fenced in. Uh, with doctrinal boundaries, but that there's a lot of room to roam. You know, in in our contemporary period, for example, uh, I would say with a, a couple of qualifications that, you know, one's position on um, on the millennium, are you premillennial, postmillennial, or amillennial, that allows for a diversified orthodoxy that you can affirm one of those positions without contradicting the confession. Small little mm-hmm. footnote, if you're premillennial, technically you do contradict question 88 of the larger catechism, what immediately follows the resurrection of the dead. Uh, the, the final judgment immediately follows the resurrection of the dead. However, uh, in the 20th century, uh, Presbyterian denomination said we can allow for you know, um, uh, doctrinal diversity here on this particular point. So you see a pluriform or a diversified orthodoxy, or as I mentioned, a couple of different positions on the nature of the Adam's reward. The Westminster divines were not agreed upon whether there was 
how to express, is it one decree or decrees of God? And so mm-hmm. the, the confession oscillates between decree and decrees. They, the d- divines weren't agreed upon uh, the nature of assurance. Uh, in other words, does the Holy Spirit use means when he is uh, giving us assurance of our salvation, or does he immediately testify to our own spirits? That was a point of disagreement. That is uh, a place where there's elbow room. And so you can look into the various nooks and crannies of the confession where you can find those open fields that are fenced in uh, that give us a great degree of freedom. And so I think that uh, we, we want to take note of those and recognize that the confession is both a limiting document, but also in a sense, a freeing document, because it says here within these boundaries, you can affirm a number of different positions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's helpful. I, I want to, uh, before we run out of time, get to chapter five, which was perhaps the most surprising chapter. I, when I first saw the heading on dueling, um, I initially thought that it must be something metaphorical, um, but could you tell us the close connection between uh, confessions and dueling? Yeah, it, it definitely seems like it doesn't fit. If we were doing Sesame Street theology, it would be which one of these things does not look like the other. Can you tell me which one it is? <laughs> and um, I, I include this because there's a sense in which this chapter brings us full circle back to the opening chapter and in the opening chapter where I talk about, you know, the importance of confessionalism and love, you know, so, so perfectly and succinctly summarized in the Shema, Hero, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That I, I come back full circle to this to say that sometimes what happens when we are being confessional, when we're trying to, you know, understand our confessions, doing our confessions, maybe even writing confessions, uh, we can become quite ungodly. And uh, we let, you know, tempers flare, we get angry because we know that serious issues are at stake. And we think if people don't agree with us, then there's a problem. And we're worried about liberalism, the collapse of the culture, etc. And so I use an instance that occurred at the Synod of Dort, which met in 1618 and 19 in the Netherlands, where two theologians essentially got into such a heated debate uh, over doctrine that one of them challenged the other one to a duel, <laughs> a duel to the death. I don't know if it was with rapiers or if it was with pistols, uh, which I guess doesn't matter. And so the, the Synod said, no, we're not going to grant you Uh, a duel to the death. Let's just conclude the evening with prayer. Uh, And so they prayed. And then after the prayer, the same theologian challenged the, uh, his, this other theologian to a duel for a second time. So not even prayer could uh, (laughs) cool his jets. And so blessedly uh, you had members of the English delegation that started working behind the scenes to calm everybody down, and they were able to, uh, you know, get things, um, you know, under control. But I just, on the one hand, I find it slightly humorous <laughs> that they would get to the point where it's like, okay, we're going to fight to the death here. On the other hand, it's profoundly sad, you know, so you don't mm-hmm. know whether you should laugh or cry because 
why would two ministers of the gospel get to the point where they think that the only way to resolve something is by dueling? Um, now, part of it is, is because this was very commonplace in the 17th century. Mm-hmm. And really, up until the 19th century, dueling was a commonly accepted way of, of resolving conflicts. Um, and so there were, however, theologians that dissented from this, even in the 17th century, to say, no, this is not a godly thing to do. You've been shaped by the world in this. Mm-hmm. And so that's the, the, the question that I, I ask and, you know, pressing it into the present day to say, in what ways, say, on social media, in private conversation, in public conversation, in the way that we treat one another, have we been shaped by our culture? And that maybe we don't shoot bullets at one another, but do we shoot, you know, bullets of nasty words mm-hmm. uh, and, and you know, hateful words to people on social media or in our, you know, writings or in our sermons or in our discussions. And I say that when we're doing theology and especially confessional theology, <coughs> we need to be godly uh, about how we do it. And it needs to, our confessionalism and love, love for God and love for neighbor uh, have to go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, uh, I I agree, whether to uh, laugh or cry, it was uh, probably the most uh, surprising bit of the book um, uh, as far as (laughs) uh, when I got to that section. Um, Yeah, I guess um, as far as the way you wrap up the book, you know, you do then say that you think that creeds confessions are somehow valuable today considering our the current cultural climate. Um, what are some ways that you see it as really helpful for today in particular? Yeah, I think it's important because first of all, it helps us to join hands with the church throughout the ages. Confessions of faith, or at least the good ones, are never just written of the moment. They often make use of earlier documents. So you can see the connections between the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Council of Nicaea and Chalcedon, for example. So it helps us in that sense to confess the faith uh, that has been once delivered to the saints, as Jude says, and that we don't want to say that our Christianity is just a shallow Christianity of it goes back to my own profession of faith, but rather it stretches back throughout the ages all the way back you know, to the Garden of Eden for that matter, but especially to the, the you know, the New Testament church. Uh, secondly, confessions of faith are useful in that they codify the church's witness so that if you, you know, if the outside world wants to know what do you believe about the Bible, we can say, here it is. It's a succinct document. Some people may think, oh, I don't know, the Westminster Confession of Faith is pretty big. But no, comparing to the Bible, it's succinct. And you can very quickly assess what it is that we believe both individually and corporately. Um, And then thirdly, it gives us a tool that we can use to pass the faith once delivered to the saints on to future generations so that they too can own the confession for themselves. Like my grandfather used to say, you can't give it away if you don't own it. And so we never want to take our confessional faith for granted, but pass it down to each generation so that, you know, God willing, when Christ returns at the end of history, we can have a faithful line of, you know, each successive generation professing that faith once delivered to the saints. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for your time. Uh, this conversation, I think, is actually uh, builds uh, and is 
naturally connected with our previous conversation about the your book, The Spirit of the Age, which was uh, dealing with the debates about revising the Westminster Confession in the 19th century. So uh, for listeners who are interested in, in that, uh, that's also up here on the New Books Network. Um, but before we go, um, John, what are... Um, what are you working on now? What do you What do you have in the pipeline as far as uh, things that you're writing about? Yeah, I've been working on uh, a couple of projects, uh, but I'll just talk about two of them. One is I've got a book on the doctrine of salvation coming out, God willing, say in the next 18 months. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is part of uh, Lexham Press's We Believe series. And mm-hmm. the We Believe series is a, I think it's a six or seven volume series that goes from prolegomena to eschatology, so first things all the way to last things, um, uh, celebrating the 1700th anniversary of the uh, Council of Nicaea. Hmm. And so uh, I've, you know, submitted that manuscript, and I think, God willing, it should be starting to go through, you know, the the editorial uh, phases of it. And then another book that I've been working on is on uh, theological prolegomena, which is the, which are the uh, the presuppositions and the methods that we bring to the process of doing theology. In other words, how do you do theology? Uh, what assumptions do you bring? Uh, what are the, you know, what are the doctrinal commitments that are necessary to that? God willing, that'll be a book that'll be out maybe in the next 24 months. Uh, okay. And uh, so I'd say uh, keep your eyes peeled uh, for those two projects, as painful as it may be. <laughs> that sounds good. Uh, Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for sharing us uh, with us about the need for creeds. And uh, I hope you have a rest of the rest of your day is really great. And we look forward to seeing your books coming out. All right. Hey, thanks so much, Justin. Thanks for having me on. And I hope you uh, take care as well. All right. Thanks. 